On February 9, 1950, at McClure's Hotel in Wheeling, West Virginia, Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy gave an impromptu speech to the Ohio County Republican Women's Club, where he claimed that communists had infiltrated the very highest levels of the State Department. I have in my hand, he said, 57 cases of individuals who would appear to be either card-carrying members or certainly loyal to the Communist Party, but who nevertheless are still helping to shape our foreign policy. With that speech, the Second Red Scare, which had been brewing since the end of World War II, began in earnest. Over the next four years, McCarthy's list would grow and grow, as communist infiltrators seemed poised to control every sector of government. He became a household name, hugely influential in the anti-communist policy of the Eisenhower administration. And by the time he was exposed as a fraud, it was too late. His list had been entirely fictional, but it had succeeded in ruining the lives of thousands through baseless accusations and insinuations of guilt that were impossible to disprove. But that's only half of the story. When we learn about McCarthyism in school, it's entirely within the context of the Second Red Scare, which lasted from 1947 to 1957. We talk about McCarthyism in relation to people like Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, Alger Hiss, or Whitaker Chambers. That's not the kind of stuff I'm going to be talking about today. I want to talk about a much longer-lasting and impactful outgrowth of McCarthyism. The 40-year-long campaign to purge gay people from the federal government. You're listening to Hidden History. My name is Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 101, The Lavender Scare. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. As always, my sources for this episode are in the description, and if you end up enjoying this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. Now, let's get to the content. So I think that in terms of American history, the Lavender Scare is actually much more consequential than the McCarthyism we learn about in school. And that's because Joseph McCarthy wasn't the catalyst in creating anti-communism in America. The fact that it's the second Red Scare is proof enough of that. Other legislators knew McCarthy was a liar, but the media frenzy he generated was a convenient tool to work towards their own anti-communist ends. If McCarthy had never been elected... Witch hunts for communists would have happened anyway, because that was broad American policy at the time. He was, in effect, a useful idiot for less bombastic far-right legislators, and through public spectacle, only served to increase the pace at which America continued down the same path. The Lavender Scare is a little bit different. America does have a long institutional history of homophobia, that's true but it doesn't exist in the same way that anti-communism does. In America, the fight against communism has always been very public and very obvious. We take it as a given that American institutions are anti-communist because communism seeks to dismantle the systems of oppression that have always steered American society. So immediately out of the gate, communism was a grave threat to the survival of America, and the government sought to rapidly oppose it. Looking back on the history of the late 20th century, with things like the formation of the religious right, the fetishization of the nuclear family, 
Reagan's intentional neglect of AIDS and his statement saying that gay rights groups aren't just asking for civil rights, they're asking for recognition and acceptance, which society cannot condone, nor can I, with Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, laughing when asked about the AIDS crisis, with things like this, it's obvious that at some point, the existence of gay people became so threatening to American society that it evoked a societal response on par with the response to communism. Much like how American propaganda told people that all communists were always part of a vast complex and secret plot, gay people now had the gay agenda, which the government portrayed as bringing about the total destruction of the family, the corruption of your children, and the total evaporation of society's moral fabric. While Joseph McCarthy was not the reason for the dominance of anti-communism in the remainder of the 20th century, we can see him as a catalyst for militant homophobia in America. The echoes of McCarthy's Lavender Scare is apparent in legislation all the way up until the 1990s. So let's talk about what exactly the Lavender Scare was and how it played out. As the 1940s came to a close and the post-war boom began, the government began to aggressively push the importance and sanctity of the nuclear family. Now, this was for many reasons, but one of them was that they wanted to roll back the dramatic social changes brought about by World War II. Out of these changes, there are more common knowledge things, like women working in factories, and lesser-known aspects, like the fact that the urbanization brought about by the war effort had led to the emergence of gay and lesbian communities in major cities. The existence of these groups, and the fact that they weren't necessarily hidden, was the spark that would eventually lead to the Lavender Scare, as conservatives began to bemoan the country's moral decay. In 1950, the same year that McCarthy gave his speech at the McClure Hotel, anti-gay discrimination began to ramp up, and the timing isn't coincidental. I said earlier that we can look back on history and see that the gay panic and the communist panic brought about very similar societal responses. Well, in order to have the governmental response to gay people be similar to the governmental response to communism, it only makes sense that they should come to occupy the same space. That being gay should to some degree insinuate communist sympathy and vice versa. This is the crux of the issue, and the supposed relationship is how anti-gay policy comes to accrue so much power. If you create an implicit link between communism and homosexuality, and communism is such a threat that it requires the extreme persecution of communists, then the natural result is the extreme persecution of gay people. McCarthy created this link in a number of ways, the vast majority through issuing gay-baiting statements like, If you want to be against McCarthy, boys, you've got to be either a communist or a cocksucker. The creation of this gay communist front, or whatever you'd like to call it, had immediate effects. Later in 1950, John Parafoy, who was then the Undersecretary of State, testified as to the existence of a homosexual underground in the State Department, and soon after asked for the resignation of 91 employees who were accused of being gay. For the federal government, this was a two-pronged threat. Not only did they seek to purge the government of gay people because they considered homosexuality a criminalized mental illness, but they thought that their own criminalization would lead gay people into the arms of the Soviet Union, 
because they associated gayness with communism due to both groups' status as an other, and because being in the closet was seen as easy fodder for blackmail by Soviet spies. Soon after the shakeup at the State Department, RNC Chair Guy Gabrielson added fuel to the flames. An April 19, 1950 article in the New York Times titled Perverts Called Government Peril quotes him as saying, Sexual perverts who have infiltrated our government in recent years are perhaps as dangerous as the actual communists. The anti-gay crusade would grow stronger throughout the Truman administration, in no small part thanks to its association with communism, which Truman rabidly sought to destroy. In 1953, the new Eisenhower administration instructed the State Department, then under the leadership of Dean Acheson, to continue with its witch hunts, firing over 400 employees suspected of homosexuality. When Eisenhower assumed office, he significantly accelerated anti-gay efforts, culminating in Executive Order 10450, which, among other things, forbade anyone suspected of homosexuality from holding any job within the federal government or at any company that was the recipient of government contracts. This executive order was a direct result of McCarthy's tireless efforts to associate gay people with communism and security risks, and could be seen as the crowning achievement of the McCarthy era. But little did Joseph McCarthy know that his time in the spotlight was drawing to a close. McCarthy's downfall was, unsurprisingly, of his own doing. At the tail end of 1953, high off a string of victories and more popular than ever, McCarthy decided that his next target would be the U.S. Army. He alleged that he had received a secret letter from FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, which revealed that communists had infiltrated the Army Signal Corps. McCarthy, unsurprisingly, found nothing, but he refused to relent. The Army hit back by accusing him of attempted blackmail, bringing the situation before the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, chaired temporarily by Senator Carl Munt, as its usual chairman was the subject of the proceedings. The Army-McCarthy hearings would be the Senator's undoing. Over the course of three months, Joseph Welch, the Army's special counsel, slowly unwound McCarthy, exposing his habitual lies and making public his extremely unpleasant demeanor. The final blow came when McCarthy was challenged to produce his list of names and couldn't do it. Over the course of six weeks, over 80 million people watched the televised hearings, and by the time they concluded, public opinion had left him in the dust. Shortly afterwards, the Senate censored him, obliterating what little was left of his political clout. To add insult to injury, in the middle of the hearings, McCarthy threatened to expose that the son of his political rival, Senator Lester Hunt, was gay. Unless, that is, Hunt didn't run for re-election. He refused, but McCarthy turned up the pressure, leading to Senator Hunt's suicide in his Senate office on June 19, 1954. McCarthy was seen as responsible for his death. Though he remained in the Senate until his death in 1957, from the effects of what is largely believed to be alcohol abuse, his legislative legacy lived far beyond him. 
The Eisenhower executive order banning gay people from government employment was partially repealed in 1975 and 1977. In 1976, the IRS repealed the long-standing rule that gay organizations had to publicly disavow homosexuality as a disease before receiving nonprofit status. The order was further rolled back in 1995 and 1998, until it was struck from the books entirely in 2017 with one of Obama's final executive orders. Investigations into supposed homosexuals in the federal government continued well into the 1990s. Thanks so much for listening this week. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I know it was a little bit shorter than usual. If you did like it, consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.